0: Inspire trust, he said, although I know what a rogue you are. I was told what happened at the tavern. I'm sure you killed those thugs solely for word to spread, to shock people, to shock me. It's obvious that you could have dealt with them without killing. I'm afraid I'll never know whether you are going there to save my daughter or to kill her. But I agree to it. I have to agree. Do you know why? Geralt did not reply. Because I think, said the king, I think that she is suffering. Am I not right? The Witcher fixed his penetrating eyes on the king. He didn't confirm it, didn't nod, didn't make the slightest gesture, but Foltest knew. He knew the answer.
1: Geralt the Witcher arrives in what I understand is pronounced Wichim, or it looks like Wism. Also called Vizima. <laughs> so there's a couple names for it. We'll, we'll go with Wachim. And he heads to an inn called The Fox. He orders a beer, but is attacked by three locals who don't like Rivians, a sentiment that seems common in the area, perhaps. Geralt kills them quite easily and then waits. He knew he would not be well-received, and by getting arrested, he believes he can get an audience with a high authority quickly enough because he seeks King Foltest who has issued a proclamation declaring a dangerous task and a reward. Geralt carries a copy of this proclamation as he has come to fulfill it. He's taken to the Castellan of Wichim, named Velorad. He's upset with this transgression, but realizes there's more at stake when he learns why Geralt is there. So instead of arresting or imprisoning him, he calls for beer. Geralt finally gets that beer he was waiting for. <laughs> he talks a lot after that. Velorad complains of monsters all over Remarking, it's no wonder witchers are needed. He explains the details of the pro- proclamation, saying Test had a relationship with his own sister, Ada, and she became pregnant. When the girl was born, the event and the child were so horrifying that one of the midwives jumped out the window to her death, and another was dazed so badly by the experience she's never completely recovered full brain function. The girl was cursed, it's determined, and she and her mother, Ada died. So, Foltest has his child and his sister buried together in a joint sarcophagus, and seven years later, it emerges as a striga. Seven more years have passed since then, so 14 in total, and during that time, means were used to first discover what the creature was, and then what to do about it. People of varying scholarship and backgrounds have apparently, over the years, suggested a multitude of solutions. Several of which, by the way, sound like the ways you kill vampires. But one of the suggestions was that the curse could be reversed. If someone spent the night by the sarcophagus, if the Striga is kept out of its sarcophagus until the third crowing of the cock, then the curse will be reversed. Maybe. So Foltest, given his relationship to the creature, latched onto this idea and offered what apparently is a very, very large reward of 3,000 Orans. Now, some have tried. Some of those were killed in nasty ways. And fewer and fewer attempts have been made over the years. They've simply abandoned the castle. An entire castle where this Striga lives just abandoned because they just couldn't do anything about it. They just built a whole new castle. Like, well, this one's... Striga infested, so we need a new palace. So over time, though, bigger problems have come up, political issues. The Striga kills people from time to time. But when you're a king ruling a large nation, you got bigger problems, right? One of those problems is a nearby king, Vizimir, who had wanted to marry this girl that eventually turned into a Striga. So even other witchers have come. Most left when they heard it had to be a broken curse and not a dead Striga. One tried and was killed. Eventually, though, a wealthy conspiracy of local nobles and other powerful people had grown tired of waiting for the curse to be broken, thinking it's just never going to happen. The curse can't be broken. They got frustrated with the wait. So they offered a similar reward, or a similar but smaller reward for ignoring the king's wishes and killing it. The king wouldn't begrudge a witcher killing the creature in self-defense after all, would he? One could always just claim We tried to break the curse, and it failed. So we had to take the last resort. I mean, how would the king know otherwise, right? Right? Hmm, maybe not. Another witcher accepted this new under-the-table proposition. He set out to do some reconnaissance, right? You want to see what you're getting into. Probably doing the kind of groundwork we're seeing Geralt do right here at the beginning. However, this unnamed witcher, after getting one look at the striga, just, Nope, no thanks. Geralt, however, is not put off by this. Rather, he tells them he uses the opportunity to leverage greater reward. He says, well, if a thousand wasn't enough for them, for that other witcher, it's not going to be enough for me either. I mean, that guy just ran off, so you clearly need to offer a larger reward. So he goes then to speak directly with King Foltest, who mostly blows him off and tells his advisors, explain the details, I'm out of here. The two uh, advisors, Ostrid and Segelin, give a description and more details such that Though she comes out every night, she only leaves the castle during full moons. Geralt apparently knows all this already. He's told tests. he's dealt with Striga before. For him, this is just due diligence, confirming expectations, making sure he's not being fed stories. So he needs to double check. As part of this investigative groundwork, he visits a miller, one of the only people who has survived an encounter with this Striga. After speaking to him, King Faltest reveals that he's been standing in the room all along in plain clothes, in a hood, come to see Geralt again. Faltest, he's no fool. He reveals, hey guy, I know about this under the table offer. They're going to try to, they're going to get you to kill it and then say it was an accident or you at last resort, right? But what's actually going to happen is they're going to say you disobeyed and then I'm going to, then I'm going to hang you. So Geralt knows he's trapped between a rock and a hard place if he wants to get this job done, but he does want to get this job done. Foltest is not sure about Geralt, especially the part about Geralt killing three patrons in the bar just to get a meeting with him. But other than that, he seems to trust Geralt because he's conducted himself in a trustworthy manner and because he believes, most importantly, that his daughter in this cursed form is suffering and can't wait. And not only that, who else is going to do it? Geralt enters the old palace, calmly sits down to prepare himself. Magic creates these grand possibilities, but it also creates hard and fast rules. The striga won't emerge till midnight, and that's that. He drinks some elixirs to enhance his abilities, one of which gives him night vision. Almost immediately, the advisor, Ostrit, appears and tries to bribe Geralt to leave. Geralt accuses him of scheming to remove Foltest from the throne, which angers Ostrit, who draws his sword. Geralt does something we'll see him do a lot, hit people or creatures right in the temple. When he does it with a weapon, it's usually fatal, but this time he just punches him, good enough to knock him out. Then he ties him up and waits. When Astrid awakens, he sees that he's tied up and realizes he's being used as bait. He confesses that, yes, I was trying to remove Foltest from the throne, but it's not just about politics, it's personal. He says he loved Ada, but he's also a little contrite, A little contrite. Wondering if maybe he's responsible for the curse. We learn through this that it's either him or Ada and Foltest's mother, Sansia, who disapproved of this incestuous relationship between her children. I mean, what mother would not disapprove of that? They exchange more blows before Geralt executes his planned strategy. Now that it's all, the striga that is, worked up and frustrated, as angry as it's ever been given... The painful touch of silver and a foe in Geralt of Rivia who is unlike anything she's ever faced. So he uses a lot of strength to cast another unnamed spell, one that turns the Striga's intense hatred of Geralt in on itself like a mirror. And, well, it really hates Geralt, so that reversal temporarily drives the beast away. He then runs to its sarcophagus, seals the stone lid closed with himself inside it, using a final spell, that is, and then he drinks an elixir and then just sleeps till morning next to the Striga's mother's dead body. When he wakes up, she's transformed. She's not in great shape, but she is a person, not a Striga. And that's what matters. But, as he goes to check on her, there was still some Striga left in her after all, and she uses her claws-slash-talons to slash his neck open really badly. She's normal physically, but... After all this time as a striga, her brain is not quite there. He knows he'll faint from blood loss if he doesn't act quickly, so he bites her neck. Okay, well, she passes out, then he binds his own neck and does the same, passes out. Just two magically altered people, unconscious, side by side, bleeding from the neck. Since it's morning, it's known people can enter safely, and soon enough, people come in to find out what happened. They take the two unconscious people away and treat them. Geralt wakes up in the palace two days later, Velrad tells him the princess is fine, but of course, incapable for her age, he needs special care, and Geralt falls back asleep as Velarad asks him, in great confusion, why did you bite her on the neck? So, great, great
2: synopsis there by Aziz. It was riveting. Of course, we would like to do some reactions now, and Mikael, would you like to start with your reaction of the chapter? What was your overall thoughts?
0: Yeah. uh, Well, first I want to say, would you, would you call the synopsis riveting?
2: (laughs) Uh, That's what I was going for. I couldn't quite say it.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, I really like this story. I have some issues with it, but I think it's, it's incredibly absorbing and I'm always impressed by writers who can just plunge you into a world and explain where they have to and leave the rest to kind of just exist as stuff that makes the world deeper and and more lived in. Um, and this story is incredible for that. I was telling Kyle and Aziz last night that I, I was just not sure how it was almost possible, but like the this story could stand on its own and like not be part of a greater universe because there is so much detail and so much kind of expectation and Sapkowski approaches it with like, a, well, of course the Witcher did this because that's just what Witchers do. <laughs> Don't you know that? And I find it really wonderful. And I think it has, all, you know, a lot of the markers that make the, the story great, really interesting themes, some really funny moments, some really poignant moments. Overall, it's a very good entry into the story. And also, we live in 2020, so nobody's going to read it and be like, incest in fantasy? (laughs)
1: Yeah, again, this uh, was 1986.
2: (laughs) It's safe to say that uh, uh, a lot of people are game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire fans, so we're kind of (laughs) disinfected by what we saw there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, there is a moment where you're like, oh, right, in this world, people might be shocked.
2: (laughs) I, I think one of the great things this chapter does is really... It's a great introduction into Geralt's personality, but also his his professionalism. He's a great observer. He's trying to view all the things that are going on, and they just thrust us right into this kingdom where all of these things are going on, and there's all this history and backstory that's already right there, right? And that's one of the things that is so unique about The Last Wish, I find, because it is a set of different short stories. There's quite a difference once we get into the the, the novels. I like to say the novels, The Blood of Elves, and and the. Cont- continuation of, you know, the main story. But I just love so much of the Eastern European folklore that he includes. You know, we have some great stuff to talk about Dracula later. Love, love that. There's a lot of really, really great references to, to fairy tales and how Sapkowski inverts them within these stories, you know, inverse these tropes. So that, I find that, that that's another thing that's really interesting. The the things that really stand out for me in the themes, these dilemma and conflicts, we obviously see a king that is having a conflict within himself because he he knows what's going on and then the people are suffering as a result of that. So there's this divide between the actual people of the kingdom and the king. So we often see that in medieval fantasies and that's something that's, there's a few really cool twists on that I found. And overall, like I said, I, I really enjoyed the themes. There's kind of misunderstanding of magic and misunderstanding of witchers and there's this back and forth of people trying to understand each other and not quite understanding each other and and some great humor mixed in with that so i really i think that this is kind of a not a complete chapter but it's a great introduction into the world that sapkowski builds with these short stories aziz what what's your reaction to this chapter
1: I, I, like McCall, I'm surprised. I'm impressed how much is packed into this. It's only a 35 page story. It's actually one of the shortest ones, basically tied for the shortest. And despite that, there's all this world building in there. You get there's a lot to dig into. Got this tragic element to it. This big strong tragic streak through it. But it also has these moments of just laugh out loud goofiness or just irreverence. I think is probably the right word. And it, it gets kind of intense sometimes, too. So I really like that. And like McCall and Kyle said, there's a lot of really powerful themes. A lot of them are f- recurring fantasy themes. Some of them are world in-world themes, but some of them are very a- applicable to the real world political themes, lots of uh, racial themes, lots of gender themes, things like that. Just lots of things that give us a lot to talk about that's applicable to the real world and situations that we may not have considered because... Well, this is a different style world. It's got different races, different magic, different things are possible. And like a lot of sh- stories when you're just getting started, it's very very often there's a few things that the author maybe decides that's not quite what they wanted to do. Maybe they changed their mind. It happens in A Song of Ice and Fire. It happens in The Wheel of Time. It happens in... Maybe it doesn't happen in Lord of the Rings because Tolkien just did so much ahead of time, so much groundwork. But even there, you can find things where characters... Don't quite speak or behave the same way they do later. Maybe there's a few phrases that get thrown around that aren't – that are suggested as typical that aren't really typical. Yeah, so that's – as a first story, not only is it great, but as a a first work in terms of a larger uh, work, it's uh, it's surprisingly representative of what's to come.
2: One thing, too, as we go forward through the podcast of Surprise and we do these episodes – and it can get kind of confusing because it does jump around a lot. But that's what we're here for. We're here to help explain that. And like I said, as we get towards Blood of Elves, there's more cohesion. It's it's almost like a prologue. You know what I mean? Like it's getting getting into that a prologue to the, to the witch the real Witcher story. So that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, he's the kind of author I I hate because clearly you're just so damn talented, <laughs> but like. <you> know. <laughs> Oh, like short stories are really difficult to write, and you know, for for this is so well contained, and I'm I'm sure he went through plenty of editing because that's what writers do. But it's it's really honestly a, a remarkable first entry into a genre like this.
2: Shall we uh, get into some themes? There's lots of themes.
0: Yeah. So one of the, you know, obviously we were talking about incest and one of the major themes of the story is like love across boundaries. And those boundaries go from, we hear Baltest being in love with his sister, uh, which is obviously a boundary that he, he doesn't seem to have been too cognizant of since apparently he was just like, yeah, I'm going to marry her, blah, blah, blah. Um, and everybody else was like, no. But, you know, and then we even have the the physical barrier of the sarcophagus, which I think is a really interesting physical metaphor in a way, because you have Faltus again talking to Geralt toward the end of their conversation. He asks if he can, he wants to come basically and, and witness the fight and see his daughter for the first time. And he, he gives a quite emotional speech about how he's never seen her. And this is obviously a, a being that he connects with in a paternal way, even though, it's a monster and his sister's daughter and his own daughter. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I think a king approaching this from a purely political standpoint would not necessarily find use in a daughter like this. But he he really does. And I, I think that's yeah really powerful. Another thing I wanted to talk about is one of my gripes with the story is that uh, it kind of approaches women as vessels. There are no women who speak in this story. All the women are either dead or a monster or uh, the shadowy grandma figure who we don't know much about and just kind of have these aspersions cast on her that she may have like literally created this beast. Ada is a silent vessel for her brother's love and for Ostrich's love. And we actually have no idea whether or not she reciprocated either of those feelings. Probably not Ostrich, but who knows. It there's one line that suggests that she may have that she had influence over Faltest, which might have mean that meant that she loves him, or it also might have meant meant that she was making the best of a bad situation. But we we have no interiority there. We just see her as a mummified corpse for a sec, and that's it. Then obviously we have the Striga, who is really interesting as like the the moment where Geralt redirects kind of her own hatred or the hatred that created her back onto her is fascinating because that's really a point where we're talking about a creature who has been created by love, but also by hate and by resentment and, and anger and has come to embody those things and, and is revisiting those things on other people to force the vessel to experience that. Like in a, I think it's, it's used like a, a mirror or something that Geralt, refers to it as. I find that really, really interesting. The witcher shivered at the memory of taking on that evil to redirect it, as if in a mirror against the monster. Never before had he come across such a concentration of hatred and murderous frenzy, not even from basilisks who enjoyed a ferocious reputation for it. How often do you separate the malice associated with monsters as as not being the monster's fault?
2: Which is something we see happen to Geralt quite often.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But she is, you know, but you know, she doesn't have a personality. Like even when she's a girl, she's just basically still a monster. And and what we like, she's stupid and she pees the bed. You know, and it's like, well, yeah,
1: <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. She's the brain of a two-year-old. Yeah, girl, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> An angry two-year-old. Right.
0: We obviously have the the queen. We don't know much about her, but I will say that this is definitely something that uh, Szkowski and I'll, I'll you know. Keep, keep an eye on this as we continue discussing. Um, he improves vastly. On, on all of these kind of thing, themes and, and the treatment of women and the humanization of women and the, giving them agency and, and all these things that are maybe missing in this story as good as it, as it is.
2: It's so interesting too because we hear Velarat earlier. He's like, oh, like you want more money and you're not interested in the princess at all? And Geralt's like, "Nah, I just want the money. <laughs> and and we, we do have the theme of unusual parenthood going on here, right? I mean, we see that throughout the story of course a lot later on with Geralt and that's kind of a, a theme here as well as Ease. and that kind of presents these dilemma and conflicts that we're seeing within this specific chapter.
1: A recurring theme for sure is that Geralt is presented with multiple stories about what's happened here and the stories aren't necessarily and I don't mean like one person believes the monster has wings and another one thinks it spits blood. You know, I mean like moral dilemmas or conflict derived from being told different things about the the ethics of a situation. For example, in this, when Velrad tells Geralt, and and Velrad's just this kind of laid back, you see he seems like a decent guy. I mean, maybe not laid back isn't the right word, but he's he's a castellan, <laughs> but he's a little bit uh he's definitely got like a happy side to him, even though he's describing all these awful things. Uh but he Yeah, like putting people's heads on pipes. Yeah, right, and, and just giving <laughs> just like tying criminals up in front of the palace to like feed the striga so it doesn't go kill someone they actually care about. But he he also just assumes that the incest is the reason this beast has been created. They're just like, Oh, it's clearly because of the incest. That's why the Striga happened. And that's part of what Geralt suspects Ostrit is going to do is to use this Oh look! The in the king's behavior brought all this on the realm, and and it's a reason to overthrow him. So there's a lot of politics in play there. And so Geralt, over time, it's a recurring theme that he navigates these situations particularly well. He understands the. He's very cynical. He's older than he seems, uh, which is referenced in this story. Full Test uh, brings that up for just like two seconds. So he has a lot of experience with contract negotiation. You shouldn't see him as a greedy guy. It almost comes off like I could see someone reading this and think, oh, he's just all about the money. But really, you should think of him as like an artist who's used to being screwed out of money for something they've done.
2: He's not doing this for exposure.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly
2: and he's providing a service to the and he's providing a service to the public and they still treat him like this. So it's like,
1: what? So so he's used to getting screwed over, so that's why he's so tight about the money here. So, it's also a recurring theme that witchers are not widely trusted. Even though they kill monsters that are attacking people and even though Geralt himself seems to be a stand-up guy, what we learn is that Not all witchers are like Geralt, and not all of them are as decent as him, and they're just people. But also... A lot of it's about their appearance and that they're magically altered and that they're kind of loners and that there's a lot of rumors about them. So you never know anywhere. Anytime he goes somewhere, you never know how he's going to be treated, whether they'll be like, oh, we really need you or whether they're like, get the hell out of here, witcher. Sometimes he'll ride up to a settlement and they'll just throw rocks at him and he has to ride on to the next place. So this is his life. So he's not treated well on a regular basis. In this story, it's a slightly different because he's not treated too badly for being a witcher. In fact, Velorad seems to treat him positively for that. And not too many, it doesn't seem to come up much. He's treated badly in that opening scene by the bar in the bar because he's Rivian. Now, Temeria and Rivia are not far from each other. And so it makes sense that they would have had some border clashes or there'd be some some racism between or at least prejudice between these nations. And uh, that's really what's at play here. It's his accent that, that, and maybe his style of dress that gets them.
2: It's really interesting, too, Aziz, because of the final outcome. It's like to kill or not to kill. Mm-hmm. He he puts himself in an incredibly difficult situation, a dangerous one where he could die, and we don't usually see this with monster stories. So this one is really unique, where he, he's trying not to kill this monster where he could, and he's he's trying trying to make this situation work. And I found that really interesting. And and the treatment of monsters because Geralt is more understanding of of monsters themselves because he's treated like one. Yeah. Hmm.
1: He doesn't want to. Uh, he doesn't want to kill anything that's intelligent. He doesn't just kill monsters because there has to be a good reason. And the more intelligent they are, the less likely he's going to kill them. But this—it's not. And there's no rule. There's no like hard. he has to. It's a constant figuring out of of what, it, where the line is, and and each circumstance has to be judged different. That's fascinating because you. That's so, so applicable to the real world, like with animal species, how we treat. Criminals and how we treat at risk everything. It just has so much application to modern society
0: Yeah, I find it really interesting that like, you know, we we do get this incredibly careful um, Treatment of the Striga from from Geralt, but the opening scene is just him slaughtering three guys who were (laughs) basically just like rude to him I'm not saying that they were good guys but also it definitely strikes me as something that even in the later stories in this book, Geralt would not necessarily have done. I think, I think in a question of price, he talks to Calanthe about how like, I'm not just here to kill people you don't like, you know? Um,
2: (laughs) I'm not here to be your bodyguard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Geralt killing three people to get the King's attention doesn't really strike me as something that follows through with his personality, but it does make an interesting contrast within the context of this story in terms of kind of what he's willing to do, and I guess you know a, a lot of things being a question of how economical they are, and how and how, like what what the desired effect is, right? So if the desired effects get the attention of the king, then I guess this version of Geralt, it's worth it to kill these guys. If the desired effect is to save this girl, then you know it's it's worth it to take that risk.
2: It, 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 he, he flips it on us you would figure that in both of these situations the outcome would be flipped where he doesn't kill people and he kills a monster so that, it's really interesting how we have different outcomes flipped like we think we think that he's gonna kill a monster in the end and then he ends up killing these people instead so I found that really interesting
0: and then he almost kills her as a girl <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. he bites her <laughs> he <to> <laughs> So yeah, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of these different characters around, and and a lot of people pulling at him in different directions. There's Full Test, there's Ostrit, there's Velorad, and there's just his own him himself. I mean, he wants to do the job right. He has his own code, something that develops over several short stories and the main novels, is him discussing. And sometimes struggling with his own code. He doesn't, you know, and that, if you're really trying to make sense of him killing these three bar patrons, which I agree with McCall is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily fit with his personality later, but he's, you can make it work if you squint a little by imagining that we see him at high points, at low points throughout his life and these, these different stories. And he loses, he definitely loses his sense of, of his ethics in certain ways, at a certain point, I'm not saying he like turns into a bad guy or something, but like, like all people, he sometimes struggles with his own sense of self, his own sense of code and his own, like what's right. What's, what's this all worth. And it's different for him because he's very isolated and lonely and there's nothing, there's hardly anyone like him, et cetera. So this is
2: the conflict with the human heart is the best conflict disease.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: You, you, spoke about struggles. I found that really interesting because there is this, you know, struggle and misunderstanding magic, and there's just superstition going on. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that, because that's a pretty big theme in this chapter.
1: The magic is very interesting in this world. It's superstition in a world that actually has real magic is an entirely different bag, but it still happens. You see in this scene where Ostrut very foolishly pulls his sword on Geralt, and, and Geralt almost, you can almost see him kind of Chuckling internally, like, this guy has no idea what he's getting into. And that's part of, of, that's another recurring theme is witchers, people think the rumors of witchers are exaggerated. They can't really be that good at fighting. And and this guy ha- thinks he's protected from Geralt's magic by what's called a turtle stone. And turtle stones don't do much at all of anything, but uh, it's apparently a commonly held belief that they're a they, uh, prevention against magic. And this is also a recurring theme that Geralt has to cut through superstition and mis and, and belief in things that aren't really accurate. As part of his training and part of Witcher training, they they're very, very well read and learned on various types of monsters. And that's certainly a recurring theme as we see in this story. He's he's fought Striga before. But to Kyle's greater point here, there are sorcerers in this world and the Witchers only have a small bit of magic. They have, which is, you know, a little bit of magic is a lot compared to someone that has none. But there's people that can create monsters. There's people that can create weather and and turn into monsters and things like that. There is pretty powerful magic in this world. Geralt's is more of basic combat magic, and it helps him deal with these monsters, etc. But it isn't this grand epic scale thing. But that does exist in this world. And within these cultures certain realms don't like sorcerers. Certain ones do. Certain, uh, you know, sorcerers and witchers don't really get along that well. Witchers are kind of on the bottom of this social magic user ladder. And whereas sorceresses are often found right at the right hand of kings and queens, advising them, you know, helping write policy, doing court intrigue, things like that. Whereas witchers are really more boots on the ground. Geralt is, is often... Broke. <laughs> That's another <laughs> recurring theme. He has no money sometimes. Whereas some of these sorcerers and magic users, like, just their means to make money are almost limitless. Serving as court mages, they're in these dynastic environments, right? Yeah, so they just have plenty. Well, money's not a problem. Let's put it this way. Money's not a problem for them. They don't They don't find themselves, hey, can someone buy me dinner? You know, that, that that literally happens, you know, with Geralt. I'm not
0: going to say it's because the uh, wizards and sorceresses are unionized and the witchers aren't. <laughs> But I'm not not gonna say that. It's true; <laughs> they
1: are unionized. It's very true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Witchers is kind of like, okay, you got your Witcher training. Congratulations, you survived. Now go out into the world and kill monsters. You know, like your your income is your own responsibility. Whereas we're gonna learn later, um, magic as a like capital M magic and its practitioners are they they have a much higher opinion of themselves and what they do and correspondingly people both hate them and also have to give them that respect in order to get what they need from those people uh and they don't need to do that from the witchers um like w- what you were saying about you know witchers being kind of underestimated is interesting because i think people underestimate them only when it suits them. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it like, it definitely suits everyone to be like, and this is not in this story, but it becomes a major touch point. Um, witchers have no feelings. Witchers get it, get their humanity burned out of them. And, and they're happy to believe that. But if they're going up to fight against one, it's like, ah, they can't be that good. That can't be true. <laughs> you know, it's very, it's, it's deeply human in that, in that way. I did want to point out like a, a, another inconsistency that's sort of, I think a, a sign of, Sapkowski's early conception of the magic, um, which is the use of the term "knowing ones," mm. it gets just tossed around frequently throughout the story to the point that you would think that like this is just what witches and wizards and, and magic people are called, but uh, that term, as far as I know, never shows up again.
2: There is this factionalism going on. Sir, is there? So there is this. There is this kind of divide in how people see magic users and how people see kings and witchers. Speaking to what Mikal said, you know, they they view witchers as these kind of emotionless husks, but we see this great warmth on the inside of Geralt, you know? I mean, just in this situation alone and what happens in the fight later on in the trailer, like, Geralt doesn't have to go to those lengths, and he still does, and look at what happens. He almost dies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he's willing to do it. Like, he, he doesn't even really question... That he's going to attempt to break the curse, you know he 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 wants to make sure he'll get paid if he breaks the curse. He doesn't argue them down and be like, okay, well, if it's three thousand orins, if she's alive, then like I'm going to kill her and give me a thousand. And he's not interested in the games that the the courtiers and Austrid are, are playing. You know, trying to pay him off in exchange for killing the Striga. He's he's already very layered and also very magnetic. Uh, this is just the first time that we see uh, something. I'm gonna I'm gonna continually point out, which is everybody like who meets Geralt sitting back and being like, "Sir, I feel like I can tell you everything," and just like <laughs> spilling their guts to this guy they don't know, which is a you know a literary trope, but but also you know I think something that speaks very well to the character as he gains allies and friends. Yes, through.
2: gear.
1: <laughs> Dandelion. Because there's a
2: lot of that going on, him being a psychiatrist for him. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is this is really true. It's so layered because he's, as much as we praise his ability to, to navigate these political situations, he's not good with relationships, personal relationships, which, would, which makes sense because he's a loner and he's doesn't have peers he's you know old beyond his years even though he looks young but he does have this magnanimity he does have this magnetic personality he does have this and he's also practiced he he uses the technique that we see used in lots of like cop shows where just just let him talk don 't say anything just just sit there and let him spill they 'll just get nervous and start talking. Just you know let that and Gerald is a master of that he just sits people and, and it's it 's a double whammy because not only do they do people not like silence so they start talking, but he 's the kind of person that people like to open up to because he's he 's just got that trustworthy appearance and that the way he b- carries himself is yeah i feel like i can trust this guy maybe not in a relationship but i f- you know he'll get this job it, done
2: it's <laughs> part of the reason why the fame of Geralt. we've got to remember that Geralt is seen as probably the most famous and successful witcher and, it, and it's something that's interesting that's presented too like you know with the whole contract negotiation thing we we see the other kind of witcher split town but he you know he's like uh, trying to fix this and there's this, even though Geralt doesn't care that much about the public perception of him, he's still there trying to, you know, fix the situation. And it shows that he does care about the perception of the Witcher Guild as a whole. So I find that really interesting, kind of that contrast going on there as well. That's a good point. Yeah.
0: Mm, yeah. He really doesn't. And this is consistent. He, he, Almost never cares what people think of him certain people he cares he comes yeah. to care about um, but for the, but he is very protective of the idea of witchers no, we want to get to the
1: character section next yeah let's talk about fall test a little do you have anything to say about fall test McCall
0: just just that I think he's a good example of the surprising ness, the surprisingness, <laughs> um, the surprises that that Sipkowski is capable of seeding into his stories, because you know you do initially meet Faltest, and first of all, we don't have a very high opinion of him in general because he slept with his sister, but also like he 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 doesn't seem like somebody who is logical you know the way the way Valorad portrays him is just like oh the king is just determined on this whim of having his daughter which is impossible and so everybody can just die and it doesn't matter as long as he gets what he wants I think Faltus even says like if you hurt one hair on her head I'm gonna chop off your head in that early scene and there's something that's kind of automatically useful um in in having a royal character or character of importance come in in disguise and then reveal themselves because i think that that immediately strips away a lot of pretension and it's actually interesting to me because the 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 merchant or shoemaker or something or whatever that that gerald is trying to talk to who survived the sugar attack is terrified, and I'm actually wondering, like, was he terrified because he's talking about the Striga, or talking to the Witcher, or is it because he knows the king is right there?
1: <laughs> um, That's a good point. I never thought of that.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I, I really think Faltest is is a really interesting twist on that, because that, that fatherly love that he has seems to be incredibly genuine and. Well, he's
2: letting his people die because of it, so.
0: That's true. That's true. It's really complicated, right? Like, he doesn't really seem to give a shit. <laughs> like, okay, well, I have my new palace, so like, whatevs. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting contrast and blend of taking advantage of people lower than him on, on the social scale while also being very protective of a being who is ultimately innocent. And he is sort of, even if it's not like, even if the struggle didn't come about because of the incest or wasn't created by the incest, I think he's aware that he bears a certain degree of responsibility. He does. He
2: does feel guilt.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he's a really interesting, I think, uh, version of, of nobility. Um, especially in this world that has so many kings. And there's just like so much that we get, we get a lot of different kinds of aristocracy in the Witcher world. And it's, he's a really interesting introduction to that.
1: It's also more modern. It's not media. People call it medieval. That's probably not quite right. It's probably more accurately Gothic. Geralt has like a little, a little miniature hourglass in this one. And there's, there's definitely a little bit more tech with machines and the swords are a little nicer and the the landscape is more lawful there's banks and and police forces and things like that they're not you know there's not guns but the society has come a little farther we'll say so i think that's really interesting and going back to falltest one thing i i think about him is that he's sort of a uh, a different version of what so, something that geralt can a little bit uh, sympathized with and, and vice versa, which is that when you're a king or when you're a witcher or when you're any sort of really unusual part of society, even a really powerful part of society, you don't necessarily, you have less freedom with your relationships. Um, not necessarily freedom, but less people that are out there that will be a match for you. And that's part of why there's these recurring themes of incest among nobility because they're, they're, they they are they do not go out and play with the common kids. They don't have, they, they don't have, they're isolated from other relationships. They don't have these other friendships. They're not out there playing in the neighborhood. And so that's, uh, and G- Geralt can kind of understand that he doesn't necessarily like, Oh, I understand incest, but he, he, I think on some level, he understands that his sister was that full test sister was the only person that could ever understand him truly. And, and, and it wouldn't be an arranged marriage and, he doesn't have these. These are the few one of those rare things where a king and a queen have fewer choices than a common person. Um, the, the
0: idea of having peers, I think, as yeah. a as somebody with power, whatever kind of power that is, with a, a singular kind of power, is um, it, they, people like that don't usually have peers. And I, I agree, it's really interesting to see kind of the um, desire for that like which is which is a very relatable desire that I don't think we would attribute to people with a ton of power which but is
2: why yeah, we see yeah. power hungry Ostrich, we see his jealousy mm-hmm. and that's a part of the big reason why uh, uh the the this curse was kind of spoken into existence with the, the the these tense feelings that were happening right like there was this jealousy going on and that kind of was a big factor into some some of the, why this happened that
1: was really Yeah, good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm test also doesn't have any other kids. He never had a child elsewhere. So this is not only the only, his sister's not only the only person he ever loved, this, um, this child, this child of his that he's never met is his only child. Absolutely. So I think maybe we should talk about Ostrit next
2: because he kind of has uh, a fairly big role. I know Mikal has some very interesting points uh, about Ostrit and Ada to speak about.
0: Yeah, um I mean, we we wrote in the doc, you know, that he he, his love of Ada is part of his character, and I'm more like, well, his love at. Atta.
2: <laughs> she she in, in in the document I'm reading it, and she struck out of love at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is
2: at love at Ada
0: <laughs> because you know, and and again, it's sort of like like look, we we don't know. It is possible that maybe they were very close friends as children, or you know, we, we don't know. But it doesn't strike me as the type of thing where, um, Ostrich particularly cared what Ada thought. It was more like, a, I want you to be mine, you know, <laughs> like I'm in love with you and no one else can play with you except me. And like that obviously persists.
2: Which speaks to, which speaks to your greater point <laughs> of women being vessels.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it, it it persists obviously for so many for fourteen years, <laughs> and it it just doesn't. I mean, something else that's unusual is Geralt unabashedly putting Ostrich on the altar to be slaughtered here, and watching. And I mean, like he he, it's it's one of the most cold blooded things that Geralt does, I think, in the entire series. And um, yeah, and I I want to think that he's like. Mm, this guy deserves it. (laughs) Like, you know, like he's not just, he's not just using (laughs) a a random sack of meat. You know, he he is, I want to use that as evidence that Astrid is not the greatest dude, but I admit that that's a logical implication that might not be in the text. (laughs) Well, I, I I do want to just say like possessiveness is an important idea in relationships going forward. And you know the the healthy and positive relationships that we see have virtually no possessiveness to them because i think a lot of a lot of the time in fiction and in real life possessiveness is substituted for protectiveness so it's like i'm protecting you but really i just want you to be mine that is actually something that has quite a clear distinction in the witcher stories with p- the positive relationships we see and it's it's interesting that we start with a a pretty in my opinion clear like possessive and non-protective relationship because he... I mean, I don't know if, like, he... Assuming that he is responsible, Astrid, for the curse, Adam might not have died if, like, if she hadn't been forced to give birth to a (laughs) literal monster, you know? Like, she might have because she was a, a young girl and childbirth, but like, she also might have lived and... So, um, basically, it's all Ostrich's fault.
2: (laughs) Which which is why it's so interesting when Geralt comes in. Because one thing he's really good at is being honest. Like, he's a pretty good communicator. Mm -hmm. Without Geralt in that situation, they might have still had this thing going on forever. You know what I mean? So he's kind of like that equalizer in this situation. Yeah, he
1: brought in the outside consultant (laughs) to smooth things over here. Cut through all the, literally cut through, which he, but not cut through, because he didn't cut anyone with his sword. (laughs) Except those three guys in the bar.
0: (laughs) Oh, God, can you just imagine, like, Honey, I'm going out for a drink. Oh, you know what, dude? Yeah, you've had a really long day. You brought in the harvest. Like, yeah, go enjoy a drink. Oh, okay. He got killed by a witch.
2: <laughs> I guess we could, you know, one, one big section that we do have is influences. Yeah. We can start to get into that. Cool. Really, the vampire myth and the striga and all that. That's a really interesting section. And I know a lot of people on the channel have been talking about bestiary videos and stuff like that. So let's get into that.
1: This is one of the great, things about the Witcher novels is how much real world influence there is from mythological traditions. And I don't mean like Greek gods and things like that. I mean like Eastern European vampire myths, Western European vampire myths, uh, all sorts of all over Europe and not just Europe, but mostly European. For example, let's just start with the word striga and the name striga. There's a version of this creature in uh all over Eastern Europe or and in lots of Central Europe, and there's similar words. For example, strega in Italian is means witch, and there's a similar word in French and in Venetian. The word strigex, which I don't know how to say this properly, it's Greek, it's a bird of ill omen, like a bat slash owl. La, uh, the Latin for owl is strix, and that's uh, specifically a screech owl. Romanian astriga means to scream, and the striga screams very loudly at Geralt, repeatedly like, really loudly yells at one point. Like a banshee, right? Yeah, at one point it like... But not like I did. (laughs) At one point, Geralt notes that it like, cracks the plaster when he when the striga gets particularly mad. The English translation of striga is poltergeist there you go the street the screaming and all that so it's really uh it, it kind of all it all connects there's so there's a lot there's a lot of ancient tradition in this and and so sapkowski as a polish man probably heard some of these stories as a kid different versions of them there's probably fairy tales and stories that are only in polish that we've never heard of but there are certainly going to be influences of this sort in there and like kyle has alluded to there is a lot of very, very direct references to Dracula. And before I get into that, we've noticed, and we're not the first, but we may notice some some new ones. But generally speaking, every Witcher short story seems to have a parallel to one famous existing story, The Lesser Evil. And, of course, A Grain and of Red Truth and, uh, is, yeah. is Beauty and the Beast. We have uh, A Little Sacrifice is The Little Mermaid. <laughs> we have... Um, we have a little
2: bit of a Moby Dick situation going on, uh, later on in, uh, the sort of history. That's Destiny. true. That's
1: true. So there's all, so it's really cool how he likes to draw on these, but he changes them. He borrows some elements from them. And of course, this is a common thing for, for writers to do. So it's really part of an, a, a part of an ongoing tradition of borrowing and, and changing, but using things from the real world. And it's interesting to talk about real world when we're talking about Striga and Poltergeist and things like that. But these are, based on real world legends. So let's talk a little bit about that specifically as it pertains to Dracula. What's interesting is how traits of Draculas are split apart. Some of them are given to the Striga and some of them are given to Geralt. For example, consider that uh, Dracula can go out in daylight without suffering, unlike a lot of vampires that the sunlight just makes them burn. But he didn't have his powers in the day. And that's kind of like what's happening here. The Striga at night; she only comes out at night, and if they can keep her out in the day, she loses all her powers. Now, that's more of a permanent thing, but it's a similar concept. the The way they beat Dracula in the original Bram Stoker novels is well, they deny him his resting places. He 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 goes to England. Part of the plot is he he you know he gets works with Jonathan Harker to go to England, and he he makes fifty coffins. And they all contain soil from Transylvania and all this. And and so they figure out that destroying these is how to is, is the way to defeat him. So they destroy all his coffins and put like holy wafers inside. So there's like a, a religious thing going on. So that's kind of similar to what Geralt does. He goes to the sarcophagus and instead of destroying it or sealing it shut from the outside, he gets inside it. And crosses his arms <laughs> as he lies down. <laughs> That's where that really gets me. It says that he crosses his arms. And then he sleeps until daylight. <laughs> and he's got a little a little timer. <laughs> and of course, one of the biggest Tower nods blast. of all is that he bites her neck after she slashes his neck open. and <laughs> but but just picture it. he's. He comes out of this coffin in the morning, impossibly old, white-haired, and then bites a girl's neck. I mean, like, hello, that's it's Dracula. It's funny because
2: after Dracula feeds, <laughs> goes back to sleep, and that's kind of what, after Gareth <laughs> almost dies, he just goes back to sleep after he's asked the question. <laughs> that's
1: true. <laughs> also in Dracula, he's very wary of letting people know how strong and fast he is. He, he, he's, he try He controls his movements and moves very deliberately because he's extremely fast and strong and doesn't want people to know see that he doesn't he's like like to be like what the hell that guy just moved like lightning and when Geralt takes his elixirs and he's talking to Ostrich he's moving really slowly and he doesn't want Ostrich to see how fast he can move he, he doesn't want the light there's like even the light of the stars is too bright for him because he drinks this stuff that makes his light eyes really sensitive and Ostrich's voice is really loud <laughs> and so because he's uh he's all prepared for this these are all uh Dracula story beats, sort of. Well, not story beats, but details. In Dracula, when he's killed, when Dracula is finally defeated, one of the gang that's helping beat Dracula is, is a guy named Quincy. And Quincy is killed in this final showdown with Dracula. Mina marries Jonathan. Mina Harker marries Jonathan Harker. And um, they have a child seven years later. <laughs> and that child, they name Quincy. So it's kind of like rising again, you know. And then finally... Uh, this is even more obscure. When, Dra- when Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, it's not quite sure what happened, but there was a, a first part that was cut out, like a chapter one that was either written separately or that was edited out. It's not clear what happened. But there was another story called Dracula's Guest that was uh, that was a kind of a prequel. And it's, it's apparently Jonathan Harker traveling to Transylvania. Dracula's beginning his plans to move to England or to settle in England. And as he's traveling there, he's there's a a nasty snowstorm and weird stuff happens. And he's attacked by one of uh, Dracula's three women, like female vampires that hangs out with him and a wolf comes and sits on top of Jonathan Harker and just lays on top of him and and protects him and keeps him warm. So you have a a wolf. uh, So you have a wolf here. And of course, when does this take place? On Walpurgis night, which is May Day, which is Beltane, which is Beltane Festival's happening during this short story. And Beltane also happens to be when Ciri and Yennefer are born. Not on the same, not the same Beltane, but years apart. So that's all just a, a whole fire hose of Dracula Witcher comparisons.
2: One thing I, one, one thing I do want to reference is the, the moon. Is, and symbolism is often linked to fertility and, and what's going on there. But one thing I found really interesting is is predators like wolves. They often hunt at night, and Geralt is named the White Wolf. So, um, you know, monsters and animals are predatory, and and we've seen a lot of that happen in in human culture because humans are active during the day. So animals are more scared and they hunt at night and do all that. So that's something that's really interesting. I, I found about that. And the moon is, is always symbolic for cycles. Of course, we talk about the seven year cycles and when the Striga comes out to hunt and all of that.
0: I think it's also important to know when we're talking about stories, this is something that's very, very important. Honestly, one of the most important things in the Witcher books is the connection to stories. And, you know, obviously, as the books go on, they depart somewhat from kind of following the templates of, of other fairy tales or subverting fairy tales, but they become their own kind of fairy tales. And um, that relationship between myth and story and belief and what actually happened is something that Sapkowski is deeply interested in in a really fascinating way. So I, I don't think it's accidental... I don't know if it's intentional, but I also don't think it's an accident that we can connect so much to another story, you know, in this case, Dracula. Um, but, but basically, just as you're reading, keep an eye on the way he, um, views his own story as a story, both in a meta sense and within the world, because that's a really interesting thing. And honestly, one of, one of the elements that, I mean, I love the series, but that's one of the things that elevates it, um, to basically, Game of Thrones level writing for me because it is so considered and uh, intellectual and, and unexpected and interesting at the same time. Can I say enough superlatives? It's really good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Her Royal Highness, the cursed royal bastard, is four cubits high, shaped like a barrel of beer, has a maw which stretches from ear to ear and is full of dagger-like teeth, has red eyes and a red mop of hair, her paws, with claws like a wildcat's, hang down to the ground. I'm surprised we haven't sent her likeness to friendly courts. The princess, Plague Choker, is 14. Time to think of giving her hand to a prince in marriage.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's, that's Velorad. So this is part of why we think Velorad is funny, because he says stuff like that. He's like, yeah, clearly, like, this is clearly what we have to do, right? Like, he's, he's just, Velorad is so. <laughs>
0: So like, hi, like, I'm Valorant. I have opinions.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's just like, this is the world we live in. We're blah, blah, blah. So that's not an un- inaccurate description. And then we also get this description, which comes from Geralt looking at the bite marks on the miller who got away from them and kind of like, hmm, let's see. Let's judge these bite marks here.
0: Yeah, so that says, the strigger could open her jaws impressively wide and had extremely sharp teeth, including very long upper fangs vampire four <laughs> yeah. of them two on each side her clothes were sharper than a wildcat's but less curved so she's dangerous
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's that other moment where she he, she opens her mouth as if she's proud of her teeth it's he's just <laughs> yeah
0: that's a great description yeah and so like it's, it's it's almost like a perverse version of a kid being like look i have my teeth, you know <laughs> wow
1: that's true <laughs> So, in all these different traditions of striga, it, it looks like Kupkovsky didn't he couldn't just pick one. There's so many types of striga. Given all well, we just talked about the the versions from Italy and Romania and all of Poland, I'm sure there's just various ones. Some of which go back farther than these nations exist. He just did. He just kind of chose his own version. Maybe it's kind of a mashup of something. But but as but it's very important to note that the the incest part is not something I could find in any of my research. There's no, that's something that Sapkowski added to this. Traditionally, it's created by uh, someone killed, uh, someone who dies through suicide, or someone who dies through, from blood loss. I forget exactly, but there's a lot of st- really strange, obscure ways that, that, that are legendary from, from Earth. I suppose what Sapkowski's doing is just taking, mashing a lot of that together and taking some of those options, but also adding his own stuff to it. As we learned uh the curse is almost certainly how it was created but it's also uh it's a picky eater. <laughs> the heart and liver are very important pieces of nutrition. Sometimes it eats more, sometimes it eats less. That's actually a, a historical reference to heart the heart and liver were could be dried up and ground and put into a potion to make love potions back in the day and this was this is really cruel. They would the legend goes that you take a, a small child or, uh, the, and, and bury them alive with food just out of reach. Uh, so that they would be struggling to reach that food and they would die in that state. And so that the thinking was that th- their state of death existed with this sense of longing that they were desperately trying to get this thing. And so taking their heart and liver would maintain those feelings. And so that's where you put that into a potion. And anyone who drinks it has that same longing for the person that gave it to them. So this is really like this heart and liver thing gets really dark if you really research it. So I'm like, whoa, what have I what have I gotten into? I mean, had you guys heard of Striga before? I hadn't. That word was completely new to well, me before The Strigoi
2: in, in, in a vampire tale called The Strain, which some oh. may have heard of, which uh, was an interesting show, and people become infected by this kind of worm parasite, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. And okay. also gross.
0: <laughs> it's not interesting at the current time, sorry,
1: <laughs> Yeah, right.
2: not, yeah. Oh,
0: I man. am actively disinterested.
2: <laughs> totally didn't mean it that way. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, it's it's interesting to me that in kind of like uh, american mythology we seem to divide stuff up in ways that they aren't necessarily divided in the original you know eastern european mm-hmm. and i feel like when, by the time we we got them to america we were like no no, no. we need the wolves to be the werewolves <laughs> and we need the bats to be the vampires and we need the undead to be the zombies and the witches to be the brooms and like i find it very interesting when when you go back and think about these things, um, how many how many connections there are between the legends and how you can't necessarily – I mean, sometimes you can but you can't always just be like, this is definitively one creature or another.
2: Which is why it's funny that Geralt mentions so many different ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: well, we'll see that yeah, in the next story, right? Yeah. He's like, wait, are you this? No, are you this? <laughs>
1: He's not a Rusalka. It's not a, risulka, it's not a <laughs> He's just, like, naming all the different yeah. types of vampires, are you? Like, my like process of, of elimination. Like, wait a second. Okay. <laughs> She's like, almost colder, harder. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm prettier than those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, should we talk about lore? Yeah. Like the magic stuff? I briefly okay. mentioned cycles and moons
2: and magical inf- influence. We can start to go with some of the signs.
1: Yeah, the moon obviously is big here because of the timing of of when the Striga is active and not. But it, it's interesting that Geralt uses more magic probably in this story than he does in maybe any other story. I think maybe Sapkowski decided to scale back a little bit of his magic use. He uses the sign of Ard, which is kind of like force pushing. The sign of Erden, which is how he seals himself in a sarcophagus. It's mostly a trap, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a trap, yeah. Um, And a sign of Axie, which is kind of like a calming mind it's almost like Jedi mind trick but also can be used just for calming and that thing he does to turn the fear in on itself which was the most interesting one that one doesn't ever get used again and it doesn't have a name but it's really really interesting there's also the the use of objects to maybe keep the curse from coming back he tells Foltest to to have her wear an inclusion and you get that nice recurring old school, as old as stories where something is explained to the reader by having someone else in the story ask what the hell that is. And that's exactly what happens. He's like, have her wear an inclusion. He's like, what's an inclusion? We're like, yeah, we all have that question too. What is an inclusion? It's a stone, a gemstone with, in this case, with a pocket of air in it, but really it means anything like it could have. It doesn't have to be a pocket of air. It could be like another gemstone inside it uh, that occurred naturally. So that's kind of neat contained it's i guess so that's the concept is that it's containing that element within this this pri- stony prison sort of it's so, sort of a symbolic reference there i guess also
0: kind of a pregnancy metaphor if you think about oh, it oh okay
1: mm. yeah well i am now <laughs>
0: <laughs> like kind of like maybe a um i don't know like a counterbalance to the corrupted pregnancy i'm yeah. i'm making stuff up, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh that's great that's cool so he also suggests juniper broom and aspen to burn in the room uh in her room every once in a while which is interesting all these things he go he goes really deep with his his herbal research because he every he throws out so many names of herbs and i looked them all up and they all seem to have a, a real connection to this like aspen is known to be an anxiety reducer and it's uh s- um sometimes Used as a, I think, as a, as a stake for for vampire staking. Uh, hawthorn is also used for that, and Hawthorne is mentioned in one of his elixirs. Bramble besom uh, is 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 broom is actually derives from the word broom. Uh, so this this bramble is is what people made brooms out of back in the day, and it's called besom, and that's also associated with like witches' brooms. And then the uh, juniper is uh, from Scottish and Gaelic is. Is, is, has been used for, for eons as a cleanser, as a blessing, as a protection kind of thing. So that obviously fits. Pretty and then, well. of course, we have the use of silver, which is prominently used throughout, throughout all mythology as this, this
2: kind of, you know, holy substance, which can, you know, repel evil or, you know, uh, Im- Im- imprison beasts. So this is something that, I mean, mm. we see Geralt use his, use his chain and that breaks. And of of course, Geralt uses elixirs. I mean, that's that's a. I mean, look, he had to basically endure all of these poisons to reach the state that he's in. So that's something that we're definitely going to be talking about more throughout this podcast.
0: Child abuse. <laughs> 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 the mixture which helped the, bleh, 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 the witch <laughs> gain full control of his, of this body was chiefly made up of. The ratrum, stramonium, hawthorn, and spurge. The other ingredients had no name in any human language.
1: Spurge is a milky white latex sap. (laughs) You love you love the word spurge. (laughs) I do love the word spurge. The fact that spurge is milky white and (laughs) latex-like is (laughs) and (laughs) poisonous. Let me run through this real fast and then you guys make some comments because, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't, I, I went really off on the, I probably went too far with this research, but I couldn't help myself. Veratrum is also known as false hellebore. It's very poisonous. Native Americans would put it on their arrows. Uh, it's, 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 it's used as medicine as a last resort because it's like a purgative. It's very, very powerful. Uh, Hawthorne, it was associated with the Fae in Ireland. Uh it's also one of the like I said it's one of the wood types used to kill vampires uh in stakes. Stramonium. Now this is the one that's crazy. Stramonium aka Jimson weed, aka Datura, aka Thorn apple, aka Moonflower, aka Hells bells, aka Devil's weed, aka Devil's cucumber, <laughs> aka Devil's trumpet, aka false castor oil, aka loco weed, aka stinkweed, aka prickly burr, aka tolguaca. It's a hallucinogen. It's a poison. It's very, very similar to belladonna. It's associated with the witch's ability to fly and Haitian zombies. So the reason it has all these names is the same thing with this, what we were talking about with Striga, is there's just a ton of different real world traditions that speak to this this herb that's grown all over the place, and they all have a different name for it. And as these traditions, as cultures clash, and they use different names, new names form in between these groups, and it just gets so confusing. But it's pretty amazing to see that.
2: Don't use this last one, by the way. Detura will make you. Yeah, you don't. You don't. This one is a strong one. You don't want to be ingesting this stuff.
1: People definitely trip and hallucinate off of this, and it's 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 just some thinking that it might be related to the ancient priests who would have visions, like the priest of Apollo or the. Some of the um, the priests in uh, Machu Picchu, maybe. So, anyway.
0: Delphi. That is wild. Weird.
1: Yeah, yeah, Delphi. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, basically, all of them are poison. And so, Geralt is drinking poisons, but that's explained well, he has. later. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, basically,
0: this is not a recipe.
1: <laughs> g- yeah, don't g- we got to we
2: got to remember that Geralt's <laughs> built up this tolerance for years, and that's part of the trial of the grasses, which which are taken. Some do yeah. not survive. So Geralt is one of the one of the Maybe. one of the lucky ones.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do a whole episode on that at some point because yeah. we 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 want to cover the short stories. We're going to cover the books, but we also have, like Kyle said, we're going to cover individual topics that we decide are worth uh, pulling together like that. That's probably a good mm. example of one.
2: I think we can move on to locations so we can talk a little talk a little bit about uh <laughs> temeria which um is an, an interesting kingdom definitely some interesting things going on there we see you know uh obviously uh these anti elephant attitudes and stuff going on throughout the story uh, the xenophobia so that's something that's interesting and of course we see how witches are treated so there's a, this this is real world stuff we we know there's all sorts of different kingdoms. So obviously people are going to feel differently towards different cultures. And you want to speak a little bit about Tamari and Mikkel?
0: So, um, they're kind of xenophobic like we see in the opening, uh, chapter or the opening scene where Geralt, you know, just low key murders some kids guys. (laughs) And, um, they generally have a not nice feeling for the elder races like elves and dwarves. But they are cool with sorcerers. So there's a lot of different like kind of varieties of, of ways that people are prejudiced in the witcher world and, and you know some of them some of them are okay with non-humans but hate sorcerers. Some of them hate everybody. you know there, there's a lot of different things that are good to keep track of.
2: And there's kind of a reason they, they see sorcerers or sorcerers and, and magic users in a better light is Thanet Isle is quite closer to Marriott
1: that's true. We'll be talking about Thanet more later. That's one of the places where there's a magic school. That's obviously really important. Aretuza. Aretuza is part of that, yeah. Um, that's certainly portrayed on the TV show pretty well. And, of course, uh, Temeria in general is just kind of, is sort of central um, in terms of this northern section that all the action takes place throughout all the books. That's part of what gets touched on with, you know, Foltest having other things to do than deal with Distriga and, and how his neighbor wanted to marry the sister that died and all that so that's too big a topic for now but it's it's good to set the uh get to set the stage a bit nearby is um Vichim, vijim yeah it's the capital city uh which is kind of on the the ismana river and lake uh, visma it's south of magpie forest uh east is the temple of melatelli and elander which is where he'll go which is where he's hanging out during the voice of reason uh so that's just nearby, basically. And and this the short story Something More also passes through here. So this is gonna be a few stories in Tamaria and then in the main novels it's gonna be uh pretty relevant.
2: We'll definitely be doing some episodes, probably. I mean, uh, you know, Nilfgaard is probably one that we could do later on once we, you know, start to get farther into the story. Some of these smaller kingdoms that we we don't have as much information. So, specifically for the shorter stories, talking more about the plot and the story, but we will be doing some standalone episodes for those of you that are interested about learning more about the Witcherverse as we move on with the podcast. I think it's time to kind of get into the the final part of the discussion here and funniest moments.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so uh, I guess I guess I'll, I'll go first because uh, I kind of cheated and I said uh, Geralt, before I go, tell me why did you bite her to death? Hey, Geralt. <laughs> <laughs> the Geralt was asleep. I kind of jumped on that one in our. Shared document as my favorite. I just thought that was absolutely hilarious way to end a chapter. By the way, uh, why
1: did he bite her? I mean, I guess he bit her because he was, he was, his blood was leaking so quickly he had to stop her before he passed out or, but do you think there's more to it though? Oh, see,
0: I think this is exactly what happens when you are petting your cat and the cat clamps around your arm and starts biting you because I, I never bit my cat, but like it was close. (laughs) I hope not. Like there's there's a reason you like go for like a really violent kick sometimes at cats. (laughs) Like you know it it's it's an instinct. I love animals. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I also like not being in pain. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think it was reactionary.
2: Honestly, I think that Geralt knew, it. like he was like he was just like, oh, okay, I gotta fight back. Yeah. I I, <laughs> I do want
0: to. I, I won't get into any details, but if you have read The Lady of the Lake, um, just remember, like, think about how the story ends in terms of mm-hmm. things with teeth, and think about <laughs> how it begins. I think it's a really interesting parallel that oh, maybe in yes. like seven years we'll get to talk about in depth.
1: <laughs> uh well what was your favorite quote Nicole?
0: um so i have two well a quote um is when right so when gerald's talking to velorad right and he's and he Geralt's like oh it's too late for your wisdom one of the knowing ones should have been sent for and he says one of those charlatans with stars on their hats and i'm just like i just <laughs> love how he goes for like the wizard like the, the magician's apprentice like the dis- like the most tip <laughs> stereotypical hilarious version and I just also love that, like, Geralt misses the final battle with the Striga because he oversleeps. Like, <laughs> he's like, oh, okay, we woke up. All right, she's human, cool. <laughs> you know, like,
2: <laughs>
1: whew. Yeah, he, he wakes up and realizes it's been longer than he thought. I didn't miss like, the oh. test, you
0: know.
2: Like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: my uh, I pulled two lines one is just pure comedy which is they're when they're trying to dance around the topic of what to call the Striga because one guy's like no it's a princess you have to call her by her royal title and Geralt's like okay uh the princess what did the princess look <laughs> like a dick about and her. Velaraj is just Velaraj just gets frustrated he's like the princess looks like a Striga like the most stringish Striga I've ever heard of <laughs> The most striggish,
2: you know, like, just like
1: striggish. yeah. <laughs> That's such a good word. Like, what is that word? I'm, I'm new to the word striga. You can't be making up other words uh, on top of it already. But my actual favorite, even more favorite, is uh, because it's not just funny, but it's meaningful. And when Geralt wakes up, after being passed out for two days because of his neck wound, he's like, oh, my God, what happened? He, the first thing he says is, my sword. And Vellerad very sarcastically says, "Yes, what is most important is your Witcher's silver sword." <laughs> like all this stuff is happening and he's worried about yeah, his he's sword. He's so stubborn. <laughs> but it's true. Like Geralt, we as we mentioned earlier, Geralt some t- is is very constantly on the edge of poverty. And if he doesn't have this silver sword, which is you got to figure ridiculously expensive, he's kind of out of a job. I mean, not out of a job, but he's sort of out of a job. Like he would have a hard a lot harder time making a living. And in fact it would mean he would probably have to start going against his code. He would probably have to start breaking his own ethic. He'd probably start to have to do bodyguard work and stuff like that if he didn't have a silver sword. So it's actually a real it, it is actually really important to his, his 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 life, to his existence.
0: And something we'll see is, you know, the connection to his identity, like the 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 totems of his of his witcher um vocation, you know, are, are deeply tied into his identity. And when When things happen to those things, to those items, they impact the way he perceives himself.
2: Good point. Yeah. So those are our favorite funny moments. We'll be doing that towards the end of our podcast when we get an episode up. We have a pirouette count of three and (laughs) and then a roach watch, (laughs) 0.5.
1: Yeah, we we want to kind of do that at the end of each episode. We want to count the pirouettes and count the roach sightings. So this was McCall. McCall, tell us about this was your idea to do the pirouette. Count.
0: Yeah, yeah. He has two pirouettes. I think during the fight, and then he references that his pirouettes are no longer going to fool the Striga. And and,
2: and, <laughs> and really this is like a big it. meme too with the people who play the games because there's the fighting <laughs> system, the pirouettes he does. Yeah, it's just really funny.
0: It's just such a funny word to use in translation. It's like I I it's. Probably not the word I would have gone for, but
1: but but it does
0: evoke grace. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, if you if you ever read or listen to any of the the swordsman Miyamoto Musashi, who some would say maybe is the greatest swordsman who ever lived, he wrote the book the book uh, something of five rings, and um, he would talk about how every if you're going to be a swordsman, you need to learn calligraphy because you want to flow and have these unwasted motions and so it makes sense it's like again I'll make a game with Ron Drifts but Serial talking was like so he's like you're not just hacking you're just hacking over and over you want you want movements that are complete you don't want to stop and start you want to flow and a pirouette is absolutely that
2: you want to be a dancer so yeah, that's, uh, pretty much going to do it for today. Next time in the next, uh, podcast, we're going to be doing a grain of truth with all of our favorite characters, the villain. No, yeah, me. The <laughs> <laughs> kind of doesn't like the I feel
0: like saying like <laughs> next time on
2: next time on the pot of
1: surprise.
0: Next time on the pot of surprise, rape, roses, and what is that thing? <laughs>
1: I'm super excited we've gotten this started we've been talking about doing it for a while and it's so much more fun to go I'm I'm excited to introduce this to a lot of y'all and for those of y'all who already know it Well, I'm glad we are getting going for that reason.
2: Yeah, the Witcher fandom, great fandom. Speaking of, uh, Witcher fandom, uh, witcher.fandom.com, where you can find, uh, some really, really interesting info on characters and kingdoms and beasts. Got some of our information that we got in the podcast from there. So vampires.fandom.com for a lot of the awesome stuff that Aziz found on, uh, on vampires.
1: (laughs) It's like a vampire Wikipedia. It's really well researched, even.
2: And uh, don't forget to rate the podcast as well. Like we said. We hope that you enjoyed episode number one of the podcast of Surprise. Like we said, this is only the beginning of where we're going to be, you know, analyzing and discussing from the Witcherverse together on the pod. We would love, of course, if all of you would join the conversation and let us know about what your favorite thoughts and favorite moments uh, from the chapter were in the comment section. Like I said, we'll be setting up some more social media on that be out be on the lookout for some uh, more announcements. So yeah, we invite each and every one of you who is excited to learn more about the Witcher or already loves the Witcher to our community and we will see you all on the next episode of the pod of surprise bye